0: where I'm going to be is in the Torah portion specifically Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers Rabbi Sachs, who is sadly deceased says that Judaism is the first religion in the world to come up with forgiveness didn't exist before in fact, what happens with Joseph today is the first instance of forgiveness in scripture and he'll use the word forgiveness next week's Torah portion. He doesn't actually use the word here, but functionally what's happened is he has forgiven his brothers. In 45.4, after he reveals himself, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then next week's Torah portion, this is after dad has died, and the family history is as long as dad is alive, the brothers don't kill each other. Once dad dies, all bets are off. So when Jacob dies, the brothers panic, and they send to Joseph and say, now we're going to be your servants and so forth. So in 50, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So in next week's Torah portion, the word forgiveness shows up for the first time in Scripture. God did not forgive Adam and Eve. He did not forgive the generation of the flood. He didn't forgive anybody up until now. Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. All sorts of instances where people have gone off the rails and there's no instance of God's forgiveness. It starts here, this Torah portion, which is one of the reasons that Joseph is regarded as a Christ figure because he is the first one that forgives anybody. It starts with repentance in this case. Joseph's brothers repent Most of that happens in last week's Torah portion. So the first thing they do is they acknowledge that what they did was wrong. And that's in Genesis 42, 21. And by the way, every time I read this, I just really get a charge out of it. Because it's very clear that Joseph is messing with his brothers. The business of putting the money back in the sack, and they go off and they're in a panic there, and the business of accusing them of being spies... All of these kinds of things, you can tell it's brother messing with his brothers. There's also a practical reason for it. He doesn't know what the family dynamic is. So he is setting things up so that he can find out what's going on with the family without asking directly. And he's also set it up last time so that if the family rivalry is such that the sons of Leah are still trying to kill the sons of Rachel then he can get his brother Benjamin out of that and just let the rest of the family go. So he set things up very nicely, but as I say, I think he's also just messing with his brothers. So anyway, as this stuff happened, the brothers recognize that they have a problem. In 4221, they, the brothers, said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon them. Notice the word there. We are guilty. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Every society has to come up with a way that people don't kill each other for random insults. Anybody ever watch old samurai movies? Oh, you're missing a great thing. 50 samurai movies are just wonderful but what you can see is this Japanese shame-based society very elaborate rituals to avoid having the swords come out somebody insults somebody else there are elaborate rituals all shame-based And in fact harikari happens when somebody is so ashamed that he can't live any longer and he kills himself and the whole society is based on that or was Judaism is different. Judaism is based on guilt. And what guilt is, is internal. Shame is external. So when you've done something wrong and you're embarrassed in front of everybody, you are ashamed. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. Remember when Adam and Eve eat the wrong fruit, what they do is they hide. They don't want to be seen. That's a shame reaction, not a guilt reaction. And in fact, when they're confronted by God, they don't own up to it. She fed it to me. The snake deceived me. Not my fault. That's all shame based. So here we have the institution of guilt based. And what guilt based is, this is, is internal, where you recognize you have done something wrong. And in order to understand that you've done something wrong, you've got to know what right and wrong are. That's what the Torah is. What the Torah tells you is, this is right and that's wrong. Because we all step on each other's toes. And in many cases, it isn't wrong what you have done. And the person whose toes you've stepped on is simply hypersensitive. Anybody seen what's happening on Twitter lately? Where you've got people who are hypersensitive. And what they do is they shame people who they think have violated their particular standards. Their standards have nothing to do with God's standards. It's simply, I don't like what you did. I'm going to shame you. That's what's happening in our society right now. As opposed to, I have done wrong. I have violated our standards, my standards, God's standards. I am wrong. I have made a mistake. I have sinned. That's the first step of repentance, acknowledging that you've sinned. And the brothers do that. And I don't know. I haven't looked this up. I need to. That may be the first use of the word guilt in Scripture, too. I haven't looked that up, so that may not be correct. So the second thing that you do in the process of repentance is you confess. Guilt is internal. I realize I've done wrong. The brothers confess. So 44.16, Judas says, What can we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? For how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servant, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Notice, Judah does not try and deflect the blame. We did it. We are guilty. Full stop. Remember, with Adam and Eve, it's, she fed it to me. The snake made me do it. What they're trying to do is they're trying to shift blame off of somebody else. Judah does not. He accepts it directly. And then the third part of repentance is demonstrate change. So in 44.33, Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant, Judah, remain instead of the boy as your servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. So Judah has stepped up. He has acknowledged his guilt, he has confessed, and he has demonstrated that he has changed. What he's saying is, Dad loves Benjamin more than he loves me, and that's okay. Because if Benjamin doesn't go back, Dad's going to die of a broken heart. And rather than do that to my father, I am going to step up and I'm going to take Benjamin's place because... To my father, I am less valuable than Benjamin is. And that's okay. So what Judah has done is textbook repentance. He's acknowledged that what they did was wrong. He has confessed, accepted responsibility, and he has demonstrated a change of heart. I am no longer the person who did that to you. I am now truly repentant. I'm somebody different. That's the essence of repentance. So when we, you, me, everybody, does something that causes us to feel guilty, first thing to do is make sure that you're feeling guilty for the right reason. Check it against Scripture, because one of the things families do and society does is they'll try and shovel guilt on you for stuff that God doesn't say is a sin. And by the way, that's what's going on today in our society. People are trying to offload all this stuff on you for stuff that's not sinful. But first off, make sure you're actually guilty. If you are guilty, confess. Confess to the one you've injured. Confess to God. Say, I did it. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And then what you do is you resolve not to do it again. You demonstrate that you've changed. That's a process of repentance. Repentance. And Joseph, some of this he's heard with an interpreter between them. They don't realize he understood. Here, Judah says to him directly, but what he does is he accepts the repentance. And he says, I am not grumpy with you. I'm going to restore the relationship. Now, I said there's sort of two ways that societies avoid killing each other when they offend each other, shame and guilt. With shame, it's really hard to get rid of. Anybody grow up in a family? How many of you, when you get together for Thanksgiving or whatever, stories will come up about stuff that you did when you were a teenager? That's shame. In my family, they still tell, when I was six years old, I tried to bury my sister in the jungle. We lived in South America. My mother had been gone for a month. She had a hard pregnancy and she had gone to Trinidad to deliver my sister. And then she comes back and here's this new thing in the house that is taking all of mom's attention that used to be mine. So I picked my sister up one day and was heading toward the door and mom says, where are you going? I'm going to bury it in the jungle. I've never been allowed to forget that. Fortunately, she caught me before I got out the door, but, you know. So it became a source of laughter in the family, but nobody ever forgot it. Whereas Joseph is, it's done. It's over. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to yell at you. Nothing. We're done. Now, there's really two reasons to forgive. Reason number one is because if you've been hurt somebody is living rent-free in your head and if you carry unforgiveness with you what you do is you continue the injury long after the person who has done it to you is gone so somebody's living rent-free in your head if you don't forgive but the second reason for forgiveness is to restore the society to the state that it was before. Yeshua talks about that in Luke 6. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So the deal here is If you are unforgiving, you are not going to be forgiven yourself. It's a measure for measure kind of a thing. And the reason for that is to put the society back to where it was before the injury occurred. So what Joseph is doing with his brothers is he is saying, we're going to put it back to before you guys jumped to me and sold me into Egypt. I forgive you it's over we are now brothers again and one of the things that's fascinating in today's Torah portion as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers they're all oh my God what's gonna happen now because here's the viceroy of Egypt and we sold him into slavery and there's all these Egyptian armed guards around and What's going to happen next? They're terrified. So once they've done all their weeping, one of the things it says that's very interesting is Joseph then talked with his brothers. And that just seems like, what's the big deal there? Well, if you go back two Torah portions ago, when Joseph ratted out his brothers who were herding sheep somewhere, And it says his brothers were unable to speak peaceably with him. So the whole thing started because Joseph ratted out his brothers that were herding sheep somewhere to his dad. And the brothers wouldn't talk to him. So here in today's Torah portion, after the reveal and so forth, they talked together. Just just this little sentence. But to understand the significance of that, you've got to go back 20-some-odd years before he was sold into slavery. Torah is very terse, and those little things are important. So the 12 of them talking together indicates a restoration of the relationship. Now, next week's Torah portion, we're going to find out that the brothers are still living in prison. Because when Dad dies they immediately send a message to Joseph and say, well, before dad dies, he said, don't kill us. Actually, no, he doesn't. And Joseph has to go down there and reassure them again that they're forgiven. As far as Joseph's concerned, it's over. He's released. He no longer has to worry about what the family thinks. He no longer has to worry about what his dad thinks. Nothing. He's free. His brothers aren't yet. And it won't be until next week that they will be. So let's talk about practical forgiveness. Go through this briefly. If you want it in more detail, I can give you a link to it. There's a guy named Stephen Marmer. He's a professor of something at UCLA. And his essay is on AISH. And I'll give you a link to it if you want. And he says forgiveness is really too heavy a word. There's too much stuff wrapped up in it. So what he does is he breaks it down into three components. They are specifically exoneration, forbearance, and release. Exoneration is what Joseph has done. Joseph has exonerated his brother, and he says the relationship in the family is going to go back to what it was before all this started. Exoneration is when you still need to have a relationship with a person... The person has perhaps made a very sincere apology. Or the person is a child, doesn't know any better. Or something was an accident. In other words, somebody was not in your face doing you some damage on purpose. Or if he was, he makes a complete confession and repentance a la Judah. Then you can restore the relationship to a state of innocence. That's exoneration. Forbearance is more complicated. you still got to maintain a relationship with this person, but that person may habitually do stuff, or it may be like your boss or co-worker, you can't actually leave. You know, it's one of these confessions, sorry, or, well, I know it was wrong, but you did, you know, that kind of thing where you don't have a complete clearance, and there isn't a complete confession. So forbearance is you decide to release, but you can still have your antenna up. You don't have to trust the person anymore, but you yourself come out of prison. You turn it loose. You can still watch and be cautious around the person and so forth. It's not complete exoneration, but you are out of prison, and the situation is over, quote-unquote. And the thing about it that you must do in that, this is you, is you've got to cease dwelling on the offense. You can't just stew over it. You also cannot set yourself up to ambush the person later. I had a deputy that was working for me one time while I was in the Army. I was director of housing and engineering, and he was director of something else. And he had shafted me somehow. I don't even remember how. See, I forgive him. My deputy said, all right, what you do is you take your rifle and you set up a SETI rest. And at some point, he's going to walk in front of your sights and then you pull the trigger. And what he's saying is there is going to be a situation where it's going to be reversed. And when that happens, remember what happened here and get your revenge. That was his advice to me. Fortunately, I didn't take it. But for forbearance, you can't do that. And then the final one is release. Release is where perhaps you can't interact with the person anymore. Anybody have anything against your parents, for example? Now my parents are long dead, but I can still remember some stuff that I was grumpy about. So I can't go to them and do anything about it. So what I have to do is release it. I can't carry it around anymore because It's damaging me. Now, there are some barriers to repentance. And quite frankly, the barrier to repentance is the human heart, which we all have. If someone makes an apology to you, comes up and asks for forgiveness, and you don't forgive, the problem is not with that person. The problem is with you. Pride. How dare... She, do that to someone as important as I am to me. I'm really important to me. How dare they treat me that way? So your pride may not let you forgive. Another one is fear. They always do this. And if I forgive them and I let them go, boy, I've given them permission to do it to me again. That's fear. A sense of justice. I've told many of you this story. My mother, God rest her soul, was really good at hating people she and her sister didn't speak for 20 years they lived a block apart her thing was I am really important and I'm going to deprive my sister of my company and that will fix her and oh by the way she hasn't suffered nearly enough for what she did to me that's a sense of justice quote unquote I'm going to punish the perp by withdrawing my society from them, and that'll fix them. The problem with that is that sense of justice is completely unreliable because that sense of justice is fueled by your pride. So you're going to think that the damage done to you was far greater than it actually was. That, by the way, is why we have theoretically impartial judges. So when two of you can't get together, you go before somebody impartial, and that impartial person makes a judgment as to who's right, who's wrong, what the degree of culpability is, and it's theoretically neutral. Neither of your egos is involved in that decision. So if you're not forgiving somebody out of a sense of justice, understand that your standards are skewed. They just are. Because we are. And then the final, of course, is habit. If you have something that happens over and over again, you may not be able to forgive because you expect it's going to happen again next week. And there's not real repentance. So as you're trying to figure out how to forgive people, recognize that those pitfalls are in front of you and try and overcome them. Now, as I was saying last week, repentance and forgiveness are built into God's universe. God designed the place that way because we're designed to learn iteratively, which is to say we screw up, we have adverse consequences, we change, and we grow, and we learn. If it weren't for the ability to repent and forgive, he'd run out of people real quick if it weren't possible to forgive, and to repent. So, how do you measure success? How do you know when you have truly forgiven someone? Pick something and bring it to memory. And if your stomach goes, hmm, like that, when you remember the incident, you have not yet forgiven. If you can look at that incident just like Joseph does, then you know you have truly Forgiven, And I will give you an exercise that works. If you're struggling with forgiving somebody, some incident, every time it comes to mind, go into the bathroom or the kitchen, wash your hands, and say, I wash my hands of this, I release, whatever that is. Now, I will tell you that in some cases, you'll need a big jar of hand lotion, because your hands will get chapped. It'll take a while. This is not something that happens instantly. But it is something that enables you to do something to release that so that that person is not living rent-free in your head anymore. As I say, we all have these things. My little jungle story with my sister has receded, so it's now just funny. It didn't used to be. Now it is. And there's lots of things that way and you'll know, as I say, when you've got a problem because your stomach will tell you that you have a problem. And that's something you need to work on. There's two things. Thing one is to get you out of prison because somebody is holding you in prison even though they may long be dead or moved out of the state. So you've got to get yourself out of prison. That's one. But then thing two is of course God's Justice, which is to say, you guys got to forgive; otherwise, your society will eventually come apart. And that's the measure for measure part. So there are two reasons to do it. As I say, I come from a family of professional haters. So this is a message that resonates with me: that Joseph is able to get past that, and Joseph is able to recognize. God's hand in all this. And yeah, his brothers treated him like scum. It's sort of like the equivalent of my burying my sister in the jungle. Well, they sold him into slavery. Same phenomenon, right? And he's able to get past that. And he's able to go on with his life. He's not holding any resentment. And according to Rabbi Sachs, this is the first instance of forgiveness in human history. It is definitely the first instance in the Bible. And you have shame-based societies and guilt-based societies. And this is where, in the Bible, the system changes. Because before that, it's shame. After that, it becomes guilt. Internal versus external. So it's a watershed moment in Scripture. And this is where Judah, by the way, steps up and becomes the one who is worthy to be the king. Because Judah is able to admit his own mistake. He's able to confess. He's able to take responsibility for his actions. And he is willing to step up and put himself in the place of his own brother. Those are all attributes of someone you want to be the king. So this is a major watershed in Scripture. Lots of things going on here that are very important. And, of course, we're coming up on the end of Genesis, and then we go into Exodus. And the thing about this transition is this is the point where God deals differently with Israel. Up until now, he has dealt with individuals. When we hit Exodus, he'll deal with a nation. So everything changes right here. It's a major watershed in Scripture. Lots and lots of reasons.